3.13, so I'll use the two minutes to do the introduction. Uh, you're in for uh, another treat. Uh, one of my other favorite historians, along with Rob, uh, Professor Steve Davies, or Dr. Steve Davies from the United Kingdom. He's the Director of Education at the Institute of Economic Affairs, which is a very, very important uh, free market libertarian think tank in the UK, uh, much older than the Cato Institute and the model for the world. Steve uh, taught university uh, history for a number of years. He's in demand all over the world, and in a, just a minute, you're going to find out why. Well, thanks very much, Tom. Uh, I'm like Rob. I'm delighted to be here in uh, Philadelphia again. I always like coming here. Uh, I do actually have a personal connection with Philly, uh, which is due to the fact that a few decades ago, when they first started showing American football on British television, I started watching it and I decided, well, I'm going to have to pick a team. So for my sins, I picked the Eagles. Uh, so uh, little did I know what kind of frustration I was letting myself in for. Uh, but uh, yeah, things are looking pretty good this season, but, uh, you know, six and one and all that. But. Uh, uh, no doubt they're going to let, let me down and lose the first game in the playoffs, like usual. Uh, now, what I want to do in this talk uh, is basically to explain how and why it is that you are all living in a world that is radically different from the world that our ancestors lived in. Uh, human beings now uh, have a kind of life experience uh, that none of our ancestors, even the wealthiest and most powerful, could even have dreamed of. And the big question, which recently a lot of historians have been arguing about and researching, is the question of exactly how and why this happened. Now, the thing to realize is that our ancestors lived in, as it says here, a Malthusian world. And there's the man himself, uh, Dr. Thomas Malthus, uh, Anglican clergyman, uh, author in 1798 of the essay on population. Uh, looks a very cheerful chap, but he had a rather gloomy message. Uh, and the gloomy message was that the normal state of affairs was for human beings to live at the edge of subsistence. Uh, because Malthus thought uh, throughout uh, history, whenever you got more production, what would happen simply is that people would have children uh, and this would tend to eat up all the extra production. Uh, and left to themselves, if human beings simply did uh, reproduce without check, uh, you'd end up in complete disaster because the human population would grow exponentially, whereas uh, agricultural output would only grow arithmetically. Uh, he thought that the, there were two things that stopped this from happening. One of them was what he called natural checks, which is the four horsemen of the apocalypse, basically, plague, famine, war, and death. Uh, and the other, though, is what he calls artificial checks, by which he meant things like getting married later, uh, not having sex, uh, basically being prudent. Not contraception, by the way. Uh, better that people should starve to death than they use contraception. And that was his view. But the point is that Malthus, as we'll see, proved to be the worst prophet ever. Uh, the kind of predictions he made about the future uh, start, stopped working at precisely the time he made them. But he's one of the greatest historical sociologists because his analysis of how human beings lived in the world and the kind of constraints they faced was absolutely spot on for the bulk of human history. Most of our ancestors, or virtually all of our ancestors actually, lived in a Malthusian world. They lived in a world where the great majority of the population were one bad harvest away from starvation. Uh, they lived in a world where there were very severe natural resource constraints and where, as we'll see, it was extremely difficult, if not impossible, to improve human living standards. Uh, so the question really, which I'll explore, is how did we escape from the Malthusian world, the world that Malthus diagnosed 
1798. Well, if you went to the past, let's say you did a time travel, and you visited the Malthusian world of our ancestors, uh, what would strike you? And one of the things that would strike you, I think, is how ugly everyone was. Uh, this, uh, this is a painting by uh, Peter Bruegel the Elder, Peasant Bruegel, as he was known, uh, because he tended to paint pictures of the, the peasant orders of his time. Uh, and this is simply called A Portrait of an Old Woman. Uh, and the point is, that's not a caricature. That's the kind of facial uh, features you would expect to find at the time in the early 16th century when Bruegel was painting. Uh, he, you would also be struck by how short everyone was. Uh, most people were, you know, the kind of height that these days would lead you to think, what, well, good heavens, has, has this person got a genetic problem? Um, because they basically had an extremely inadequate diet. The average diet of our ancestors consisted of bread, bread, a bit of vegetables, bread, a bit of meat, bread, and bread. Uh, and not surprisingly, with a diet like that, high in carbohydrates, but not much in the way of protein, they didn't grow very tall. Uh, one of the ways you could spot the aristocrats, by the way, is that they quite literally towered over their contemporaries, uh, because they were the ones who had access to a meat-high diet, and so they were tall. So Edward I of England, for example, most of the Plantagenet kings, well over six foot, uh, and they were about, you know, almost two feet higher than the average height. Uh, there's another... You know, kind of face you might expect to see. That's um, uh, a peasant head, as uh, it's usually called. Bruegel didn't bother giving it a title. Uh, and you might also have seen scenes like this. Uh, this has, uh, uh, it's called a, a peasant brawl. Uh, and you can see uh, there's a bit of a fight going on there over a game of cards. You'll see all the cards are lying scattered around on the floor. Uh, one of the other things you would notice about the society of our ancestors is how incredibly violent it was. Uh, the commonest kinds of crime uh, in the period right up to the 18th century were not crimes of uh, theft or crimes against property. They were crimes of violence against the person. Uh, your chances of being killed uh, by violence in medieval or early modern Europe, or indeed most other parts of the world, uh, were worse than they are in you know, the south side of Chicago today. Uh, they were really bad. It was one of the commonest causes of death actually, uh, after infectious disease. Uh, and so brawls of this kind would be one of the other things you'd notice. Uh, one of the little-known facts, although Stephen Pinker has been doing his best to correct this, uh, is that actually over the last few hundred years, the world has become much less violent, much more peaceful than it was before. That has to do with the uh, lack of resources that I mentioned earlier. When you live in a world uh, where resources are extremely tight, uh, where you're always just one bad harvest away from dying from starvation, people tend to be uh, pretty aggressive. Uh, there's, life is very cheap. Uh, there's no real reason to uh, value life highly because uh, the chances that you will die are fairly high. Uh, to give you some idea of the kind of world we're talking about, uh, in any part of the world before about 1850, uh, one in four of you would not have made your first birthday. Uh, the infant mortality rate uh, was about 25%. 33% if you lived in a town or large city. Uh, you would not, none of you, would have reached the age of 20 or 21 without losing at least one close relative, uh, a, a parent or a sibling, uh, to accident or to disease. And that would be true even if you were in the royal family. Uh, that kind of mortality rate did not uh, excuse anybody. Now, here, on the other hand, is a graph that shows what I'm talking about and why explains the title of this talk. This is world GDP 
over the last two millennia, uh, taken from uh, the OECD's archive originally and the work of a man called Angus Madison. And you'll see how for virtually all the last 2,000 years, the line is completely flat. It just does not go up. And then quite suddenly, right at the end, there's an almost vertical increase. Uh, it just goes off literally like a rocket. Uh, Here's another one. This is GDP per capita over the last 2,000 years. Uh, the different colored lines are different countries. The one at the top there is the United States. The red line, the line there, only goes back to uh, about the uh, 1700s. Uh, the green line is the British Isles, which, as you can see, is traced right back uh, to the ancient world. And you'll notice how all of them show the same pattern. Uh, this is true whether you're talking about China, which is also one of the lines on that graph, and others. The only difference is the point at which that sudden upward spike starts. But the basic pattern is the same. For virtually all of human history, living standards did not improve. They stayed the same. The living standards of an Italian peasant in AD 1800 were pretty much the same as those of his Roman ancestor uh, at the time of Julius Caesar. There had been no significant rise in living standards over those 2,000 years. And so what those graphs show you is how uh, suddenly there's this massive explosion uh, in wealth and output and consequently in living standards, starting just about the time that Malthus wrote his book, uh, which is why he was rather unfortunate, really. Um, this is the economic output in England since 1720. Uh, now, you, you um, sort of may notice that there's a sudden sort of takeoff around 1800, uh, and that the takeoff then accelerates. And that's partly a function of the fact that growth, of course, is cumulative. Uh, if you had shown that as rate of growth rather than cumulative growth, uh, then what you would find is that basically England is not growing at all until about 1750. Then it starts to grow at about half a percent per annum. The rate of growth grows up to about 1% per annum in the 1800s. Uh, it then goes up to about 2% per annum uh, in the 1860s, where it's stayed ever since. Uh, and that's pretty much the long-term trend growth rate. By the way, on that graph, you may notice a couple of little notches uh, there. Uh, those are the little notch that you can probably see just at the bottom of the almost vertical section. Uh, that is World War I, World War II, and the Great Depression, uh, which gives you some idea of how little impact it actually had in the longer run. And the little notch right at the top is 2008 and the Great Recession. Uh, so again, uh, you'll see what it is. This graph is perhaps more significant. This is the graph of output per head in England. And that's the crucial one, really. Because what you need to be bothered about is not simply the fact that more stuff is being produced. It's the fact that more is being produced per head of population. Uh, because that is what means that you have a rise in the standard of living. Because obviously, when you work it out, it means there's more stuff to go around per person. Uh, if you double your population and you produce twice as much, nobody is any better off because there's only the same amount of stuff to share around. But as you'll see here, what you get is a uh, very slight increase in uh, per capita output from about the 1700s onwards, goes on quite steadily, then starts to accelerate in the uh, middle of the 19th century, and then it accelerates even more uh, after that, as I said a moment ago. Uh, so these, are, uh, these figures are the things that explain why the world we are living in now is totally transformed compared to the world that Malthus uh, was seeing the last years of. We live in a world where human beings are unbelievably rich compared to our ancestors. 
Uh, the average person now is wealthier by a number of meaningful standards than even a monarch would have been, say, in the 17th century. In terms of the kind of conditions of life, the kind of products that you have access to, uh, the kind of style of life that you have, uh, even a poor person in the United States today uh, is richer uh, than, say, Louis XIV of France, the richest man uh, in Europe and the most powerful man in Europe in the 17th century. Uh, average global incomes have increased by a factor of 17 uh, since 1800. Uh, this is completely unprecedented. It had never, ever happened before. Not only that, but also because of this huge increase in wealth, uh, the range of options open to people has increased dramatically. One of the things I have to say is I'm a bit sceptical about people who claim they can remember their past lives. Just a bit sceptical. And one of the reasons why I'm sceptical is that pretty much everyone who can remember their past lives uh, seems to have had a lot of past lives where they were high priestesses uh, or kings. And I'm afraid, they, uh, statistically, that is unbelievably unlikely. Uh, if all these people who can remember their past lives remembered lots of lives where they were peasant farmers or their spouses, then I would take it a bit more seriously. A bit, uh, anyway. Uh, because that is what 90% of our ancestors were. In every human society up until really the middle of the 19th century, about 80 to 90% of the population, usually 90% or more, were peasant farmers. That's because you had to have that proportion of your population engaged in farming. If you didn't, then you would not be able to get the harvest in or do the planting in the spring, and everybody else would starve. No society, no matter how advanced or civilized, had more than about 20% of its population living in towns and cities. Now, by contrast, the United Nations announced about seven or eight years ago that now a majority of the world's population lives in cities, defined as urban settlements, with a population of more than 50,000. Uh, that is something totally new in human experience. The first human society in history to have a majority of its population living in urban areas was Great Britain in 1851. But now that is the entire planet. And one of the strongest demographic trends at the moment, actually, is for people to leave the countryside and go and live in towns and cities. Uh, some people would have you believe that they are being sort of like driven off the land and forced to live in cities. But I notice that the people who make these claims, usually rather affluent people from parts of the world like California, um, do not show any signs of wanting to go and live the life of a farmer in the rural districts themselves. Uh, if they did, I would take their complaints more seriously. Uh, so we're living in a world, say, which has been transformed by this. And here is perhaps the most dramatic element of this transformation. Uh, this graph shows total world population uh, from 1600 onwards. Uh, the red bit um, is the part of the world's population that is living on less than a dollar 25 cents a day in, uh, in, in adjusted figures. Uh, the green part is living above that level. Now, you'll look, if you look right back at the start, uh, sorry, that's 1820, this goes back to 1820. If you look at 1820, these are World Bank figures. Something like 85 to 90% of the world's population is living on the then equivalent of a dollar 25 cents a day. That is the World Bank's benchmark for utter abject poverty. Uh, if that's the income you have, you are living on the bare edge of subsistence. And if you look over the next 80 years or so, you can see how gradually 
as the world's population goes up, the proportion that is not living in absolute poverty uh, starts to gradually fall away. But even as recently as the 1970s, 50% or more of the world's population was living in that condition. And as you'll see there at the bottom, uh, on the right-hand side, there's been a precipitous decline. Uh, and its most recent report, the World Bank revealed that the proportion of the world's population living uh, below that absolute utter poverty line has fallen below 10%. So since 1820, we have gone from a situation where almost 90% of the world's population is in that condition to one where right now it's less than 10%. Uh, that is the most amazing transformation in the condition of human beings. It is the uh, greatest uh, removal of human suffering, uh, I think, that has ever taken place. The only thing that comes close to matching it is the medical breakthroughs that we've seen in the same period, and the advent of modern medicine and, and so on. Uh, it's an extraordinary transformation, uh, and it means that, actually, uh, we may very well, realistically, be able to look forward to a world in which absolute poverty of that kind simply does not exist. Uh, now, of course, one of the last things that Jesus said to the disciples was, the poor you will always have with you. Uh, and not going into what he actually meant by that or the point of that particular passage, uh, for most of human history, that was just taken as a given. Poverty was the norm. It was the default condition. Now we are moving into a world where actually that is not true. We probably will not always have the poor with us if the trends that we can see in the last few decades uh, continue. Now, one of the ways to think about this uh, is a story which a friend of mine, Don Boudreau, regularly tells uh, about a TV series that John Kenneth Galbraith uh, used to have in the 1960s. Uh, John Kenneth Galbraith, by the way, um, was the subject of a rather witty remark by uh, George Stigler. Uh, George Stigler uh, said uh, once that all great economists like himself were really tall. Stigler was about six foot five. And he said there are only two exceptions to this rule, Milton Friedman and John Kenneth Galbraith. <laughs> <laughs> Galbraith was also about six foot five. Um, they, uh, but anyway, uh, Galbraith had a series where he used to uh, present arguments on a particular topic, and at the end of it, he would give about five minutes to somebody else to rebut the arguments he'd made. And he made one about global poverty. And he gave the five minutes at the end to a British economist called Peter Bauer, uh, Lord Bauer, as he later became. And Peter Bauer didn't use his five minutes. All he did was look in the camera and purse his lips and say, Professor Galbraith has talked at great length about poverty and its causes. This is nonsense. Poverty has no causes. Wealth has causes. And that was what he said. And that's a brilliant insight when you think about it, because poverty is the natural state of affairs. You do not need to explain poverty. What you need to explain is why some people sometimes are not poor. It's wealth that requires explanation, not poverty. And so the big question is, looking at those graphs I've shown you in this one here, why is it that we live in a world now where we can realistically look forward to the disappearance of absolute poverty, something which would have struck most of our ancestors as utterly uh, utopian or fanciful. So there are basically a couple of questions. Uh, what happened, why then, and why in Europe? So the first question is, well, what actually happened? Uh, now, the answer to that is that what you see is a movement to a different kind of economic growth. 
Now, we've had economic growth throughout human history. Economic growth simply means more stuff being produced. But for most of human history, the kind of economic growth we've had is what is called extensive growth. Extensive growth means producing more output with more input. You double your population, you produce twice as much stuff. You somehow acquire a whole lot of extra land, you produce more output with that land. That is the normal pattern of growth. The point about extensive growth, though, is that because you're only getting more output by having more input, you're not increasing productivity. You're not making those factors of production, land, labor, and capital goods, more productive than they were before. And that means you don't get a rise in living standards uh, because, uh, as I say, it's twice as many people, twice as much output, it's still the same amount of food and stuff for everybody. Now, occasionally, you do get windfall gains. Sometimes you will discover a new crop or a new product or you'll discover a new uh, unpopular bit of land and this will give you a windfall gain. So, for example, in the 12th century, uh, the Chinese uh, discovered a new variety of rice that had been developed by the Vietnamese. Uh, and this new variety of rice could be cropped twice a year in both the spring and the autumn. Uh, and so what this meant was that at a stroke, the amount of rice that China could produce doubled. Uh, and that, by the way, is why the main centre of population gravity in China shifted from the north, the valley of the Yellow River, down to south China and the Pearl River area, south of the Yangtze, because that's the major rice-growing part of China and it could now suddenly support a much bigger population. But the point about things like that is that they are only step changes. They don't lead to a sustained rate of growth. You simply get a higher rate of output, but it doesn't actually then lead on to yet more things that produce higher output. It's a one-off. Not only that, but the normal historical reaction of human beings to step changes, windfall gains like that, is to have more babies. Uh, this was Malthus's point. Uh, all more babies will survive because you'll temporarily have more food to eat. And so the population will rise. And so after a certain amount of time, uh, you will not have had a gain per capita uh, because uh, there's twice as many people, perhaps, eating twice as much rice. Uh, so you've not had a sustainable, a sustainable gain. So that is the pattern for most of human history. What has happened since roughly the end of the 18th century, and what explains all those graphs that I've seen there, uh, is that we've had a switch to intensive growth. Now, intensive growth is doing more with less. It means producing more output with less input. Uh, it means that you use the resources, the land, the labor, the capital, more intensively and more effectively so that you actually increase factor productivity. And by doing that, you get the kind of growth uh, of incomes and well-being that you saw from those graphs that I, I just showed you. Uh, now, the crucial thing also is that this, this explosion in intensive growth that we had from roughly the late 18th century onwards has been sustained because we have had episodes of intensive growth before. There was one, for example, in the Roman Empire in roughly the second century. There was one in the Middle East, particularly in what is now Iraq, uh, in the late seventh through to middle eighth century. Uh, there was a very big one in China in the 12th and 13th centuries. Uh, there were other episodes like this at other times and places. Western Europe, for example, in the 12th century uh, experiences such an episode. But these episodes of intensive growth in the past do not last. 
uh, they typically only last for about between 75 and 120 years at most. Uh, usually they're shorter than that. And what happens is that after a while the intensive growth stops, it no longer keeps going, and you revert back to either economic stagnation or just extensive growth, which amounts to the same thing. So the crucial thing in the modern world, the reason for, the, if you like, for that, uh, what has happened since 1780, roughly, uh, is that we've had intensive growth, sorry, yes, intensive growth, but it didn't stop. It's kept on going. And if you looked at that graph I showed you, you'll notice that even terrible economic catastrophes like the Great Depression have had very little effect. They have not derailed that process of intensive growth. It's just kept going on and on. And that is the other thing uh, that's um, you know, unusual or novel about the world we live in. So that's the first question, what actually happened? And that's the answer. So the next question is, well, how did this happen? Why did it happen? Now, the, you can start distinguishing here between the immediate cause and the longer cause, the deeper cause. The immediate cause is something that the economists now pretty much agree about. For a long time, lots and lots of economists were deeply divided about what the cause of intensive growth was. Uh, some people thought it was more capital, some people thought it was more trade, some people thought it was a greater division of labour, uh, some people thought it was other things. There were a whole range of explanations. But in the last 20 to 30 years, there's been a broad consensus emerged that the economist who got this right was Schumpeter. The cause of intensive growth is sustained innovation. That is what leads it to happen. Sustained invention, sustained innovation. Now, it's important to understand what an innovation is for an economist. An innovation is not the same thing as a discovery or an invention. An innovation is a new way of doing things or a new technology or a new form of social organization which makes people and resources more productive than they were before. So if you had gone back to uh, Alexandria in the first century BC at the height of the Hellenistic era, uh, you would have discovered that the Greeks in Alexandria had got a steam engine. Uh, they'd invented the steam engine, but they only used it as a toy. It was not used to make things more productive. It was not an innovation. It was only an invention. By contrast, James Watts and Thomas Newcomen and the other people who create the modern steam engine in the 1790s, 1820s, for them, it's an innovation uh, because it actually leads to a huge increase in output per hour worked and per amount of money invested. Uh, that's what an innovation is. One way of thinking about this, which I owe to a friend of mine uh, called Adam Martin, uh, is, is this. Uh, there's a Jackie Chan film, I forget the name of it now, where in one wonderfully comical scene, he beats up about 10 people with a ladder. Uh, if you just uh, YouTube search Jackie Chan fight ladder, you'll get this. It's wonderfully choreographed. Now, imagine you're living in a rather strange world where people have invented ladders, but they're only used as weapons. Uh, now, in that world, ladders are not going to be adding anything to wealth uh, because all they're going to be used for is to inflict physical injury on people. Uh, so that's not increasing human well-being, to put it mildly. Uh, but suppose in this imaginary strange world, somebody's walking along and suddenly thinks, gosh, that weapon, that ladder there, if we put it up against the side of a building, you could climb up to the top and fix the roof. Uh, that's an innovation, uh, which is what, because it makes people more productive and more effective. Now... 
one of the things to realize is that historically, innovation and innovators are very, very unpopular. Uh, being an innovator is not the way to win popularity contests for most of human history. Uh, there's a reason for this, uh, which is that if you're living in the Malthusian world, you're living in a world where you're always on the edge of subsistence. And the point is that innovation is risky. Most innovations do not work, or most attempts at an innovation are unsuccessful, I should say. But they use up valuable, very scarce resources. So most people historically look upon innovators as dangerous, reckless people who are putting everybody else at risk because they're using very valuable, scarce resources that might be the difference between life and death on some harebrained scheme of theirs. Uh, most historical societies, in other words, are neophobic. They hate and fear the new because the new is highly risky. And if you're living in a society where you're always on the edge of starvation, uh, you're going to be very, very risk averse in some ways. Uh, now, this is reflected in all kinds of ways. There are all sorts of social institutions, laws, rules, uh, and the like, which are quite deliberately set up to keep things going the way they are and prevent innovation. Uh, Tom mentioned guilds earlier on as a form of self-governing institution uh, in medieval cities. That's very true. But the other aspect of guilds is that they were institutions designed to prevent innovation in manufacturing. The only way you could become a carpenter or a cordoner uh, or any one of the other trades in a medieval city was if you joined a guild. And you could not simply set up and practice. You had to go through a very long, typically seven-year-long apprenticeship procedure before you did it. And woe betide you if you introduced any kind of innovations. The guild would almost certainly uh, stop that and ban it. And that's just one example of many. There are countless examples of institutions like that. Now, you may have noticed when uh, Rob talked about Benjamin Franklin that in the late 18th century, certainly uh, in the American colonies over here, but also back in Europe, in both France and England and the Low Countries, things had changed. Uh, you may have noticed how he mentioned all those innovations that Ben Franklin produced. That tells you straight away that something had changed. Uh, in the late 18th century, uh, European society and its offshoots over here became much more neophiliac. They began to like new things and like innovations. Uh, and we'll see why I think that is in a moment. Now, the big question, though, and this is the one where the historians have been, if you like, uh, you know, having the real uh, big fights and arguments is over is the other two questions. And that is, OK, given that the reason why the world is now so much richer is because of intensive growth, and given, because this is not controversial, that this is largely driven by innovation, why does this all happen at that time? And why does it first happen in Northwest Europe, in basically the British Isles and Belgium? Um, why does it not happen before? Why did you not get uh, an industrial revolution at an earlier period in human history? Why did you not get a sudden sustained period of intensive growth before? Uh, and why did it happen in Europe? Why did it not happen in one of the other great world civilizations, such as uh, the Islamic world, India, or China? China is the particularly apposite point here. 
If you look back at China in the 13th century, when it was ruled by the Song dynasty, my favorite Chinese dynasty for various reasons, uh, China had the level of technology and economic organization that Europe did in the 1780s, uh, the point where it started to become highly innovative and you got modern growth. So if you look back at 13th century China, it was apparently, and many Sinologists think this, poised to have a kind of revolution of innovation like the one that we saw after the 1780s in Europe. So why didn't it happen then? And why did it not happen in China? Uh, China, by the way, until about the 14th century, is by far the most innovative society on the planet. Uh, if you look at the list of technologies that are first invented in China, it's amazing. Uh, the, the list is almost endless. There's gunpowder, paper, printing, the wheelbarrow, the spade, the watermill. All these things are invented in China. Uh, there's a few that aren't. Uh, the Indians invent the windmill, uh, but the Chinese then perfect it, uh, as do the Europeans who get it via the Arabs in the other direction. Uh, there's a couple of other things, but most of the world's technologies are first created in China before the 14th century. Since then, something I'll return to, China has become much less innovative, although that's beginning to change uh, right now. So why does um, uh, it happen? Now, there's a number of possible explanations for this. One sort of argument could be that it's because Europe is a freer society. It has all those institutions that Tom was talking about. It's a more free society. It has better institutions than other parts of the world. Now, in one sense, this is true. Uh, Europe, for various reasons, the ones that were part of that story that Tom told you, does have a more complex and flexible system of law. It does have uh, more limitations on arbitrary government rule than many other parts of the world. Uh, it does indeed have more of the rule of law. But there's one big problem with saying that Europe is the place where this starts because it has these institutions. It's a more, if you like, free society than, say, the Middle East, the Ottoman Empire by that time, uh, or China. And that is that Europe has had these institutions for a very, very long time. It's had them since, as you probably gathered from Tom's talk, since uh, the High Middle Ages. But why, then, did it take 400 years for them to have an effect? If the institutions come into being during the High Middle Ages, which many of them do, why is it not until the late 18th century that those institutions actually lead to sustained innovation and intensive growth? That, you know, you, you might argue, oh, it's a very gradual, slow build-up, and we only start to notice it uh, in the late 18th century. But if you go back to those graphs, that's clearly not the case. Uh, it's quite clear that there's a sudden, quite abrupt change which takes place in the 18th century. It isn't a case of things gradually, slowly building up over four or 500 years. It's rather that uh, society is going along in Europe, as elsewhere in the world, in pretty much the way it always has been in terms of living standards, until quite suddenly there's this uh, dramatic shift into a higher gear, if you will, uh, in the late 18th century. So um, what you can say, therefore, is that the free institutions, things like property rights, the rule of law, limited government, constitutional rules that bind governments, things of that sort. These are a necessary condition for that transformation, but they're not enough by themselves. Uh, almost certainly, had you not had those institutions, you would not have had the innovation. 
There are all sorts of good reasons for thinking that. Uh, if you live in a world where property is not secure or where ruthless predatory rulers are not constrained in various ways, they, you do not have an incentive to create new wealth by innovation because if you do, it's almost certainly going to be taken away from you by the predators, the social parasites. Uh, so having these institutions is almost certainly a necessary condition. But the evidence of history is that it's not a sufficient condition. Uh, there has to be something else. So what might that something else be that suddenly appears in the 17th uh, and early 18th century. Now, one argument is that what occurs is a cultural shift. Now, there are two different accounts of this which are not exclusive. You can think both are true. The first is the argument put forward by one of our greatest living uh, economic historians, Joel Mocha from uh, Northwest University uh, in Evanston. Uh, Mocher thinks that what happens is that in certain parts of Europe in the late 17th century, you get the creation or the sudden appearance of what is called a culture of innovation, where suddenly innovators become uh, admired, and suddenly people are really interested in doing it. Uh, and you suddenly find lots and lots of people who are tinkering, messing about with machines, uh, trying to work out how to make uh, various kinds of mechanical devices or tools more, more efficient. And this gradually becomes institutionalized so that you start to have actual societies, organizations like the Lunar Society in Birmingham. Nothing to do with the moon. Uh, it was a society of people who used to get together in Birmingham in the Midlands and England to talk about technology uh, and science and things of that sort. It included amongst its members uh, Joseph Priestley, the man who discovered oxygen. Uh, well-known political radical as well, by the way. Uh, and you can trace this back to about the middle of the 17th century, perhaps a bit later, but not much. And that's undoubtedly part of it. Uh, a friend of mine called Anton Howes has just completed a PhD in which he's basically constructed an enormous database of all of the innovators uh, that you can find in the British Isles from 1650 through to 1880. Uh, and he's got a database of several thousand people. And what he can show very clearly is that the number of people like that is steadily increasing as time goes on, and that they have created a kind of subculture of innovation. Uh, so that's one possible explanation. Another cultural change is the one that's uh, talked about by uh, Deirdre McCloskey in her big three-volume book, uh, which she's basically just, I think, finally wrapped up with the third volume. What Deirdre argues is that the crucial thing is that in Europe at this time, initially in the Dutch Republic, but then increasingly in England and other parts of Europe as well, you get a change in the way that people think about business. Uh, what she points out is that for most of human history, merchants and traders are looked down upon. They are thought of as seriously dodgy, morally disreputable people. Uh, there are plenty of people who are prepared to sing the praises of the peasant, the honest uh, toiler of the soil upon whose back the whole of society rests. Uh, there are a ton of people who are writing praises of aristocrats or of priests or of ascetics, but merchants, uh, artisans, manufacturers, they are just no part of it. And then, Deirdre points out, quite suddenly, again, in the late 17th century, you get the sudden appearance of a culture that actually valorizes uh, and recognizes uh, the importance and the dignity of business and trade and commerce. Uh, 
Now, this also happens independently, by the way, in Japan at the same time, from about the 1690s onwards. Uh, Japan at this time is ruled by the Tokugawa clan. And under the Tokugawa, Japanese society is highly, highly stratified. And the basic rigid ranking order is at the top there's the emperor, below him is the shogun, below them are the daimyo, the major feudal lords, below them are the samurai, uh, below them are the peasants, the farmers, below them are the artisans, and then right at the bottom of the scale are the merchants. That of all. They're not right at the bottom, actually. There is another class of people called Burakamin, uh, Japanese untouchables who are even below the merchants. Uh, they're people who work with dead animals, like butchers or leather workers. Uh, but apart from them, uh, nobody is lower in social status than a merchant. Uh, and then starting in the 1690s in Osaka, you get a movement called Chunindo. Uh, and Chunindo means the way of the townsfolk, as opposed to Bushido, the way of the warrior. Uh, and what the advocates of Trinindo do is to say that being a merchant, being a businessman, is an honourable occupation, the exercise of which enables the expression and realisation of human virtue. This is all couched in Confucian terms, of course. And uh, it becomes very successful. Uh, and uh, that, me that is one of the reasons why uh, Japan in the 19th century is the other part of the world that's growing as rapidly as Europe, uh, even before... Uh, the opening of Japan to the rest of the world following Matthew Perry's intervention. Now, this kind of change in culture that McCloskey is talking about has a number of uh, sort of like signs or symptoms. Uh, one of them is the way art uh, works. Now, you may have noticed the, the slide that you saw about uh, James the Seventh and Second and uh, William the Third and Queen, Queen Mary, his wife. And you may have noticed that um, James the Second is shown wearing armour. That is the typical kind of stuff you'll get in paintings throughout most of European history up to the Dutch Golden Age, 17th century. Uh, apart from religious subjects, the major uh, topics of most paintings are the, aristoc the aristocracy. And how are they portrayed? They're always portrayed as warriors. So kings are always shown, typically, wearing armour and usually mounted on a horse. Uh, quite unusual for them to be portrayed in any other kind of dress. The other favourite topic uh, is the favourite pastime of the aristocracy, which is the hunt. So you get lots of pictures of dead animals and dogs tearing animals apart and that kind of thing. Uh, now, by suddenly, if you go to the Dutch Republic, what do you find? You find instead, in the art of people like Vermeer or Rembrandt or the other great painters of the Dutch Golden Age, a representation of domesticity, the household life of the bourgeois or of trade. If you think about Vermeer, my own favourite Dutch painter, most of his paintings, which are all set in his house in Delft, are all about domestic occurrences. And you get lots of other paintings of merchant ships, uh, you know, trade, counting houses, things of that sort. Uh, the same is true in England at the same time, where you also start to get other genres like the pastoral. It also happens in Japan, by the way, uh, where you get the well-known art form of what's called ukiyo-e, which is those Japanese woodblock prints. Uh, that I'm sure you're familiar with. Uh, and those are typically portrayals of what the Japanese call the floating world, uh, which is the uh, pleasure districts of Edo, Tokyo as we now call it, and other major Japanese cities. And part of this cultural shift that Deirdre McCloskey has identified is not just that uh, business is now seen as being something honourable and therefore something to be encouraged, uh, but also uh, a view that material comfort, material well-being, uh, the pleasures of the physical world, making life better for people, are things to valorise, to reward, to admire and to look up to. 
Uh, and you see this in the art of 18th century Europe, increasingly the so-called Prococo art, as well as in other forms. Now, I think both uh, Mocha and McCloskey are onto something. I think both of these uh, cultural shifts definitely take place. However, I do have two problems with it. The first is it's not clear to me that these are causes rather than effects. Uh, and it could be, of course, that they're both. It could well be that these contribute to the sudden switch to intensive growth. But I very much doubt that you can explain it entirely by itself, because you then have the problem explaining, well, why did this cultural shift happen then? Uh, was it just that suddenly in the late 17th century, a bunch of Dutchmen uh, woke up and thought, hey, it's actually pretty cool being a merchant. Uh, let's change the way we do it. No, um, that, that seems fundamentally implausible somehow seems to me. So it's undoubtedly part of it, uh, but uh, it's, I don't think, the full story. And I would add a third element. And it's this third element which, in combination with Europe's pre-existing institutions and the cultural shifts I mentioned, causes that sudden dramatic change in Europe. And this is the long-term effects of the gunpowder revolution uh, in Europe and other parts of the world. The gunpowder revolution, or the military revolution as we call it, uh, is a transformation in the nature of warfare that takes place all over the world uh, between roughly about 1450 uh, and 1650. Uh, it's often called the gunpowder revolution because the advent of gunpowder weaponry is a crucial part of it. But it's not just that. There's also changes in the way war is organised, changes in the social organisation of war, if you will. And it's a fundamental, dramatic transformation in the nature of warfare. And what it does, therefore, is to change the nature of political power. And in what the gunpowder revolution does is to enormously increase the power of governments uh, because it gives them access to destructive force, deadly force, which is far greater than anything they've had before. It also does one thing else, by the way, which is that it means that the threat to civilised, uh, settled communities from Central Asian nomads finally disappears, and that's a huge change in world history. Uh, because for most of world history, the great problem for people living in the Middle East, China, Europe, is that they're constantly subject to attack by nomads from Central Asia. Uh, whenever the planet cools down, uh, that is really bad news for most of the people in Eurasia, because that means a drought in Central Asia, and that in turn means that the Huns or the Tartars or the Mongols are going to get on their horses and start riding out and laying waste to huge parts of Eurasia. With the advent of gunpowder weapons, that all stops. But uh, what I say, what the gunpowder revolution does is to increase the power of rulers. Now, you might think, surely that's a bad thing. And in most of the world, it is. In most parts of the world, what you find happens is that the gunpowder revolution leads to the emergence of very, very large empires. Uh, so in Russia, for example, uh, medieval Russia is divided up into about 20 small states. By the time you get to the early 16th century, as Tom explained, you've only got one ruler, the Tsar. Moscow has conquered and swallowed up all the other states. The same thing happens in India, uh, where you go from having a highly fragmented political system uh, in the late Middle Ages to having the Mughal Empire, uh, which by the mid-17th century controls virtually all of the Indian subcontinent from Agra. Uh, you've always had an empire in China, but the Chinese empire after 1368, much more powerful than what had been before. Similarly, in the Middle East, uh, you go from having an incredibly fragmented and unstable political system to having one where there's just two powers. Uh, there's the Ottoman Empire, which controls the great bulk of the Middle East, and there's the Safavid Kingdom in Persia, and that's it. 
But in Europe, it didn't work out that way. Uh, something different happened. Now, if you had been an observer from the Galactic Confederation uh, and you visited Earth in AD 1500, your report back to uh, Federation Central uh, would probably have been something like this. Well, we can see a clear pattern of development where the Earth is increasingly being you know, owned up and parceled up amongst very large empires. Uh, this is probably going to happen in Europe. Uh, and our tip for the power that's almost certain to do this uh, is a German family with protruding chins uh, and droopy eyelids. Uh, the Habsburgs, in other words. Uh, and that's because by uh, 1520, uh, Charles of Habsburg has managed to inherit uh, not just the Habsburg family lands in East Germany, he's also inherited the Low Countries, uh, which is the richest part of Europe and has Europe's largest gun foundry. He also controls most of Italy, uh, and he controls the whole of what is now Spain. And thanks to Hernan Cortes and Francesco Pizarro, he's about to acquire a huge empire in the New World with a ton of silver, uh, which is the world's main monetary metal. So you'd have to say, uh, open a shot case, you know, one of those blowout Super Bowls here. Uh, the Habsburgs are going to roll over Europe. Uh, but they don't. Now, they don't, that's not because they don't try. Uh, Charles's son, Philip II, his main goal is the creation of what his contemporaries called a universal empire. He wanted to basically make himself the paramount hegemonic power in Europe. Why was he not able to do this? Well, it's because he was unable to defeat those stubborn Dutchmen. Uh, the Dutch rebel against him in 1566. He crushes that rebellion. Uh, and then tries a policy of terror against the Dutch. Uh, he sends his hitman, the Duke of Alva, uh, up to the Netherlands with 20,000 Spanish veterans, uh, and Alva then imposes a reign of terror on the Netherlands. Uh, he gets two of the rebel leaders, the Count of Egmont and the Count of Horn, to come back to the Netherlands from exile in Germany uh, on the promise that they were of safe conduct, and no sooner are they back than they're arrested, uh, and then they're secretly tried by a drumhead court and then publicly executed in the Grand Place in Brussels. And then in 1576, uh, the rebellion breaks out again, led by the third leader who had been smart enough not to accept Alva's bona fides. This was William the Silent, the Prince of Orange. And what you then got was the 80 Years' War, the struggle between the Dutch Republic, as it became, uh, and the Habsburg monarchy. And if you look at the odds, you would say, they were overwhelmingly on the side of the Habsburgs, but the Dutch are able to hold them off. Uh, and eventually, by 1648, when the war finally comes to an end, Spain is exhausted. It is no longer a great power. Uh, and that year, the Treaty of Westphalia, what you find is that something has happened in Europe that hasn't happened anywhere else. Europe is divided up into about 20 medium-sized states. These states are much more powerful than medieval ones but they're in intense competition with each other. And there's none of them have a hegemonic power. Any time it looks like one of them is going to become the hegemonic power, like France under Louis XIV, you get a countervailing alliance formed of all the other powers to stop it happening. And this competition is very, very intense. And what it means, of course, is that if you, uh, if you lose the competition, then you're going to have a big chunk of your kingdom taken off you, or you may even be partitioned and cease to exist, which is what happened to the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, one of the largest states in Europe uh, in the 16th century. So the point is, what that does is it changes the incentives facing rulers. For most of human history, rulers have a very strong incentive to discourage innovation. 
not only because that's what most people want them to do, for the reasons I gave earlier, but also because if you are the ruler, you don't really want your subjects getting that much richer. Uh, you don't mind them getting a bit richer because that more, it means more tax for you. But you don't want them to become really rich, and above all, you don't want lots of innovation because that undermines your authority and your ability to control them. But now, after 1648, European rulers are in a very difficult position. They need to encourage innovation because if they don't encourage it, somebody else in Europe will do it and that other person will then get a head start over you and they'll probably win the wars you have with them. And so quite suddenly, from the early 18th century onwards, European governments, particularly the Dutch and the British, but also increasingly the French uh, and a number of other countries, like the Swedes, uh, start to quite deliberately encourage innovation. They get rid of and sweep away all the old laws, regulations and institutions that had inhibited innovation before. They start giving rewards and prizes to innovators. They stimulate this emerging culture of innovation uh, that Joel Mocha has identified. And merchants suddenly become heroic figures because they're building up the treasure and the power that you need to compete with the French. And there's nothing more important than that. Uh, absolutely. Uh, you know, if the, the basic guiding principle of British foreign policy is if the French are for it, we're against it. Uh, or, you know, somebody, um, my own favourite is the, the explanation given in a great programme, yes, Prime Minister, of Britain's attitude towards the European Union, uh, where he says, Minister, you have to understand the goal of British policy for a thousand years has been to bring about a disunited Europe. Uh, so why are we in the EU? Well, it's to stop it working. <laughs> so, so, so why do we want more countries in? Well, it's simple. The more countries are in it, the more difficult it is to get anything decided and nothing gets done, which is both very funny and completely true. Uh, so, so basically, I think that that is why uh, the, this happened when and where it did. Europe had, if you like, the preconditions, foundations, but that by itself would not have been enough. What was necessary was also a cultural transformation, but above all, that way the gunpowder revolution worked out in Europe and the change it brought about in the incentives facing rulers. Now, um, it, it's, it's, it's worth saying uh, at this point uh, that this was purely uh, accidental. Uh, in his opening talk, Tom stressed the degree to which history is driven by contingencies, and that's very, very true in this case. Uh, there were all kinds of really chance contingent events that explain why it was uh, that uh, Philip II of Spain was unable to crush his Dutch, rebellious Dutch subjects. Uh, in some incredibly narrow things, just in one crucial point, for example, in 1577, the siege of Leiden. Uh, had the Spanish army captured the town of Leiden in the Low Countries, they would have cut the province of Holland in two, and they would almost certainly have crushed the revolt. Uh, the Dutch break the dikes and let the sea in to flood the land for miles around Leiden. And they send a relief column through on flat bottom barges. But the water is just not quite deep enough for them to get through. Uh, and the people in Leiden send them a message saying, you know, if you don't get through in the next couple of days, we're going to have to surrender. We are starving. Uh, and then at that point, the wind changed and the tide rose and they were just able to float through the gap in the dike uh, and lift the siege. Had that not happened, almost certainly the Dutch would have been crushed. So there's a whole range of pure contingencies that explain this. Now, the final question um, is uh, this one. Can we expect modern intensive growth to go on forever? Now, it's very tempting to say, well, yes, of course. Surely, if it's been going for this long, 
it's going to keep on going. But that would be very, very dangerous. Uh, that's the fallacy of inductive reasoning. Uh, just because something has kept on going on a particular way in the past does not mean logically that it has to keep on going on that way in the future. Uh, you can tell this by you know, thinking about a turkey. Suppose you are a turkey, and every day you observe, being a smart turkey, uh, the farmer brings in some food into your food, seed into your food lot and feeds you. And this happens day after day after day. And from this you conclude, well, he's going to keep on doing this and he has your best interests at heart. Now, did I mention this is an American turkey? Uh, sometime in early November, something happens that you can't predict from past experience, uh, which is not very good for the turkey, uh, but pretty good for somebody wanting a Thanksgiving dinner. Now, th that's the problem with inductive reasoning. Just because we've had 200 and something years now of intensive growth, which has transformed the world in the way I described, we can't assume it's going to continue. There are a number of possibilities. One of them is that actually it's going to flatten off. It could well be that the curve is going to have that big vertical upshoot and then it's going to flatten off. So we'll have a kind of standard of living roughly like what we've got now, but it's not going to get any better. Uh, that's a very real possibility. There are some people who think that pretty much everything that we can invent has already been invented. Uh, there is actually a Swiss scientist who has published quite a lot of papers arguing this and that he thinks that by about the middle of the tw uh, 2020s, that's it. We'll have pretty much invented everything. Uh, there are things that you might theoretically invent after that, but it's just not possible for us to do it. There are plenty of uh, economists at the moment who think that actually the glory days of innovation are behind us and that we are living in a world now where innovation has radically slowed down. And the argument is that the innovations we have now, like smartphones and social media, uh, are very nice and they're great fun, but they don't radically raise productivity in the way that things like the washing machine, the electric motor, uh, the internal combustion engine did. That's the view of a friend of mine called Tyler Cowan, for example. So the argument is we may actually just see a kind of flattening off, in which case we'll go back to the kind of very low, maybe half a percent annual growth that we saw uh, in, let's say, the mid-18th century. Another really dark possibility is that actually it will stop completely and that we'll actually see a course of human history in which there's a kind of gigantic spike uh, with our, our, our descendants crashing back to that kind of Malthusian world that our ancestors lived in. Uh, now, this is not just a theoretical risk. I mentioned China earlier on. And this is where I want to finish off. Um, China, as I said, was the most innovative society on the planet until the 14th century. Under the song, it came closer to a takeoff of the kind Europe had in the 18th century than any other civilization did before that point. But then they were conquered by the Mongols, and this was an utter disaster. Uh, I can't begin to describe how bad it was for China that this happened. The Mongols, for one thing, thought that growing food on land was a waste of good pasture for horses. So they completely depopulated northern China uh, and just drove everyone off the land. Uh, also, not that this was the Mongols' fault, you then got the Black Death, which struck China twice in the 1320s and the 1360s and killed something like 80% of China's population. And in 1368, uh, the Chinese finally drive the Mongols out. And the new dynasty, the Ming, uh, what they do is they decide, the obvious question they have is, well, how did this terrible stuff happen to us? And their answer is that it's because China had been too innovative, too dynamic, not respectful enough of the past. And what they do is they quite consciously and deliberately make China a non-innovative society. Uh, they go back to having an economy where subsistence peasant farming is the dominant kind of economic role. Quite deliberately, they do that. They scrap and ban a whole number of technologies. Most famously, they outlaw the technology of building ships that can sail out of sight of land. 
uh, at the end of the 15th century, in 1477. Uh, prior to that, they had huge ships which sailed all over the Indian Ocean. They completely outlawed that technology. They destroy all the records apart from one copy that they keep in the Imperial Archive, just in case. Uh, anyone who knows how to build these ships uh, who is literate is put to death. Uh, and they basically destroy the technology. A whole number of other technologies are just wiped out. Uh, that kind of thing could happen again. Uh, it is quite possible that you could have, if you like, an anti-modern or anti-technological revolution. And so really, in many ways, if you want things to get better and better, as they have been for the last 200 years, the most important thing to do is to ensure that we have continued innovation. And that means that we must protect the institutions which, as I said, are the necessary condition for those innovations to take place. You are not going to get innovation in the event of a breakdown or collapse of the rule of law uh, or, any of the, or the protection of human liberty. But also, we need to, uh, if you like, encourage a particular way of thinking about the world to valorise and reward innovation uh, and to uh, encourage a way of thinking about the world that is optimistic, future-oriented and pro-innovation rather than the opposite because otherwise we could lose the enormous uh, beneficial transformation of the world that we have seen. Uh, and at that point, I'll stop. Question? Okay, yep. So to the point of why then, so you mentioned that the institutions, rule of law, et cetera, had been around for some hundreds of years, yep. necessary but not sufficient. I would have thought that a couple of things, the, the, the philosophical development, think of Locke in particular, and others would have played an important role in answering the question why then. And along with that, and maybe in a virtuous circle, the recognition that the mind is the source of massively non-zero-sum progress. Hmm. Uh, to, to your point of competition for innovation being found to be in Europe important for military survival, I would have thought that in past cultures, whenever there were two or more cultures or countries that had approximately equal strength, that there would be a similar drive to innovate if that were really the reason in order to uh, okay, a um, couple of things. To take the second point first, uh, the crucial thing that changes is military technology. Suppose you're in a place like medieval Europe, the medieval Middle East, uh, medieval India, where you have lots and lots of competing states, much smaller ones than you get after the military revolution in Europe. Uh, medieval you know, Europe consists of something like nearly 2,000 recognizable political units, basically, most people think. Now, in that situation, um, you do indeed have intense competition between the lords, but the point is that the, the risks are much lower because the military technology is such that it's very, very difficult for one power to conquer all of its neighbours. Extremely difficult. Uh, you do not have either the military organisational structures or, more importantly, the technology to have large permanent military forces. Uh, and so you, can, you may be able to conquer a relatively large part of the Middle East or Europe using the kind of military technology and organization available at the time, but it's going to be almost impossible to hold on to it. Uh, and even, even doing that much is very, very difficult. Uh, so the incentives are certainly, yeah, to you know, make sure you have decent knights or a decent supply of knights that you can call upon, or you know, the Arakovans in other parts of the world. 
but you don't have the kind of life and death imperative to kind of constantly improve military technology that you have once the advent of firearms has come on. Uh, can you make a sword significantly better by uh, scientific research and discovery? Eh, not really. Um, can you make uh, firearms significantly better? Absolutely. You, know, you can change the effectiveness of artillery enormously. Uh, so I would argue that there's a kind of uh, radical shift which is brought about in the incentives, which is brought about by, by that factor. Uh, in terms of the, the thing about ideas, yes, that is true. Now, I think that um, the advent of people like Locke and indeed other philosophers, people like Pierre Bale, uh, Spinoza, a whole bunch of other people in the late 17th century, is part of this transformation that I mentioned. Um, Spinoza, for example, uh, nominally a Jew, but actually an atheist living in uh, you know, the Dutch Republic, why is he not put to death? Uh, he would have been put to death 100 years earlier, no doubt about that. Uh, similarly, John Locke, I mean, the key thing about Locke actually is that he's a Socinian, he's a Unitarian. He tries to keep this pretty quiet, but everyone knows it. Uh, again, most previous periods, he would have ended up dead, uh, because that's about the biggest heresy you can have in a Christian society. Uh, but the point is that rulers are smart enough by the late 17th century to know that if you go around killing lots of people who are dissenters, uh, you're going to lose all your smart people. Uh, the great example was that of Louis XIV. He'd revoked the Edict of Nantes, he'd driven out all the Huguenots, and this had been a disaster for France. They'd lost some of their most talented people. Where had they gone? They'd gone to the Dutch Republic and England, his great enemies. Uh, so I think that that's part of what's going on. Now, that thing about mind, yes, that's absolutely true. Uh, and that's all part of what you might call the, the scientific revolution, the other change that takes place in the 17th century. Suddenly realising that... Um, Prior to that, the normal view was that the amount of human knowledge was very, very large, but ultimately finite. And what you get in the 17th century is the idea that the human mind can actually discover new things and that the, um, the scope of human knowledge is potentially infinite. And therefore, the number of things that you can get from the human mind is also potentially infinite. So that, yes, that is a major new development. Thank you. Yep. Yeah, in, uh, sometime in the 60s, Paul Ehrlich made the famous prediction that there'd be hundreds of millions of people starving, sort yeah. of a Malthusian prediction. And then this didn't come to pass because uh, I think uh, a couple of the major causes were uh, right at that time you had the huge drop in fertility rates from, what, about 6.5 to, hmm. you know, now a little over 2 over the decades, and then also the Green Revolution. Do you think that prediction really had a whole lot of merit, or he should have been able to foresee well, no, some of it this? Well, no, it didn't. It didn't. It didn't have prediction be uh, merit because the essential element in its prediction was uh, the belief that trends would just go on as they were and there would be no innovation in response to those trends. Uh, now, had he been looking at what Norman Borlaug was doing, uh, you know, over here in the United States, he would have known that was not the case because, of course, what Norman Borlaug did was to bring about the Green Revolution in response to precisely the kind of sudden tightening of food supplies that you saw in the 1960s. Uh, so what Ehrlich did was to assume that, OK, we've got this situation, we have these trends going like this, human beings are not going to change in reaction to those trends. Nobody's going to innovate, people aren't going to change their behaviour. Uh, and, of course, that's, I think that's a ludicrous uh, presumption. Uh, human beings do respond to change their condition. And as long as you have a situation where innovation is possible, you have people like Norman Borlaug. Uh, and the man who saved a billion lives, as Greg Easterbrook famously called him. So that's why it was a completely invalid. Uh, that's why, of course, he had a bet with Julian Simon and lost it. Yes? So my question refers back to the graph where we see a decline in poverty that's happening. Yeah, yeah. And my question is, is that we have data that supports that poverty is going down. 
how is it then that uh, leftists, for the most part, like the American Democratic Party, you have Kamala Harris, Bernie Sanders, and uh, Elizabeth Warren, who are saying, we need to go more to the left and instill socialism, and that even overseas, we have Venezuela, which is being destroyed by it, and mm. then in England, you have Jeremy Corbyn, who's asking for it. Yeah. How can they justify that we need socialism, even though it has failed, but we also see a trend that poverty is going down when the basis of their whole argument is that poverty is going up. Yeah. Well, there are two things about that. One is that, to be fair to these people, they're typically not talking about global poverty. They're talking much more parochially about relative poverty in the United States or some other wealthy country. I think Venezuela is a kind of terrible warning. I think a lot of people around the world have like, looked at that and thought, my God, that is definitely not the way to go. Um, interestingly, uh, there are other countries in Latin America, like Bolivia, for example, which have also got you know, pretty radical left or center redistributionist politics. But although Bolivia is not doing as well as it could do, it's not been a total disaster like Venezuela. And the reason is because uh, the president in Bolivia has not controlled prices the way Chavez did. So I think the lesson that everyone has learned from this is don't, con don't control prices. This is the, the worst thing you can do. So I think that's kind of lesson that's learned. But I think that um, uh, what is also going on is um, I'm afraid the fact that some lessons appear to need constantly being relearned. Uh, it's partly a function of a generation who can remember things dying off, people like me, uh, and a new generation coming up who have no experience of uh, you know, the hard-won experience. Plus, uh, there are simply lot, there's just a huge amount of ignorance out there. Uh, one of my favorite YouTube videos is a series of videos, well, there's actually more than one, several of them, by Hans Rousing, which is these series of uh, statistical videos about what people generally think the world is like. So um, one of them is where you ask people, uh, and this could be you know, young people in the UK, people in the United States, what proportion of the world's population do you think lives in absolute poverty? And most people guess about 40%, when the actual figure is 9%. Uh, and if you give them four options, you typically find that they do worse than chimpanzees. Because a chimpanzee has a one in four chance of being right, so they'll be 25% right. Whereas human beings typically score worse than chimpanzees. What is really alarming uh, is that graduates do worse than the average population. Uh, that's very alarming and very revealing, I think. But the, 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 the point is, I think, that in some ways, our perceptions of the world and the beliefs we have about how the world is have not caught up so people think, in a way, that the world, in the sense of, say, global poverty, is still the way it was 30, 40 years ago. Uh, it, it hasn't yet got on to them. And the interesting question, of course, is why is that? And I think that's to do with the nature of the media uh, and the basic problem that good news is not news. You know, you do not sell uh, media time by telling people good news about how the world is getting a better place, I'm afraid. Uh, telling people that the world is going to hell in a handbasket is a much better way of getting people to click on your website or watch it. Uh, so we just have to do more work in, you know, getting the facts out there, I think. Thank you. At, pr at present, we have an organization, cultural phenomenon called uh, environmentalism. Mm -hmm. It is like an anti-industrial revolution. Yes. It's very popular. Mm -hmm. Their goal is to go back to living in caves. Yeah. Prehistoric times. Yeah, this is true. The more ex the most extreme ones, people like uh, John Zerzan. Yes, they are. I mean, Zerzan is this guy who lives in Eugene, Oregon, uh, who's written books with titles like *The Pathology of Civilization*, uh, and he thinks, well, the primitivists, the really extreme ones, they think that 
the point where humanity took a wrong turning was when we invented agriculture, and we should go back to being uh, hunter-gatherers. Zerzan is even more crazy than that. He thinks the big mistake was when we developed language. Uh, and that actually we would be better off living uh, in total harmony with nature and presumably being eaten alive pretty frequently by major predators and megafauna. Um, but that, that, to be fair, those are the extreme wing. However, having said that, yes, there is a large movement. Now, a lot of these people, however, are people who, quite frankly, I think are engaging in moral posturing. Because as I said earlier on, I don't see these people actually giving up the prerequisites and pledges of consumer society. They're giving minds up. Yeah. They're giving minds up. Yeah, well, if they did, I would, I would give them more respect. There are some people, however, who are quite serious about this. Now, um, to support your point, there's a guy called Bill McKibben, who's a very well-known environmentalist, author and advocate. Bill McKibben quite explicitly thinks that Ming China is the way to go. He thinks that the process I described is what we should replicate, that we should quite deliberately sweep away a whole lot of technologies uh, and go back to, apparently, something like the United States in the 1820s, uh, but with the internet. <laughs> How you're going to have the internet uh, with the level of technology that you had then is, is a bit of a mystery to me, I'm afraid, particularly given the fact that the internet actually uses uh, as much energy as the world's entire airline industry. <laughs> That's but there right. you go. But so, yes, there is such a, a movement. Fortunately, I don't think it's going to really catch on. Um, I think it's always going to be a kind of fringe movement, unless there's some kind of major political disaster when they get it. Yes? Yeah, to your point, though, um, uh, these lessons aren't learned because Los Angeles just instituted price controls. So, yes. you know, but that's Los Angeles. California's a different world. Uh, but uh, do you have any suggestions? Uh, you made the point of uh, we got to get the word out there and educate better. You know, I think most of the people here sort of see things largely the same way. Do you have any recommendations for what we can do in our daily lives? I, I mean, I'll have my, my, my kids friends will come back from the Ivies or Stanford or wherever, and uh, in many ways, they're junior socialists, hmm. and it's a Well, I think the basic thing, thing to do, it, it is actually very powerful to simply make the point about how much better off we are than previous generations, that point I started with. Simply you know, making to people the basic point that had they been alive 200 years ago in any part of the world, in any level of society, there's a one in four chance they would have died before they had their first birthday. Uh, that is not controversial. Uh, you know, none of their professors are going to disagree with that. Uh, and that kind of thing does you know, make people think, I think. The problem is too many people take the way we live now for granted. That's the thing. Yep. How necessary is trade for innovation? Uh, highly necessary. It's one of those necessary but not sufficient conditions. Hard to imagine that you can have innovation in a closed society that isn't in contact with the rest of the world uh, for two reasons. One is that weakens the incentive to innovate. Uh, and secondly, because, of course, what trade does uh, is to bring people together and you know, pe force people to confront new ideas, new ways of doing things, and that's more likely to bring about innovation. Uh, however, it can't be enough in and of itself because we've had extensive trade links for most of human history, actually. Uh, and they didn't lead to the kind of sustained innovation that we've seen uh, since the late 18th century before. Uh, there were, like I said, there were a couple of episodes, but those were always clamped down. So trade, again, falls into that category of necessary but not sufficient, I think. And it is true, though, that the more trade you have, the more innovative your society is likely to be. It's also worth saying that most innovation takes place in cities, uh, and there are a number of reasons for that. Uh, it's much cheaper... Uh, the cost of making contact with other people who share your interests and exchanging ideas is much, much lower 
when you live in the same city as compared to when you live in two villages 90 miles apart. It's a, you know, a whole day's walking to get there. Uh, so the, you know, in economics jargon, the transactions costs are a lot less. So it, the move towards greater levels of urbanization also goes along with much greater levels of innovation, and not just economic innovation, but also cultural, artistic innovation, all that kind of thing. Ready shortly, all right. Your graph on the societies and the decline of, of poverty. Unfortunately, in politics in the United States today, it's irrelevant because you're talking about the world and nobody cares what's going on in yep. some part of China or some part of, uh, of Russia. They care about relative poverty. Yep. It is whatever the lowest person in your neighborhood is and sometimes it's even micro little areas yeah. you know your car is bigger than my car and therefore my kids are displaced how does this how do we change that thought process because you're always going to have poverty there's always going to if you give everybody a million dollars tomorrow within two years they'll be much wealthier and much poorer well that is only a problem if you accept the uh, definition of policy as relative one of the things to do is to constantly knock on the head the idea that uh, poverty is defined as being relative poverty, because that actually just means inequality. Uh, the thing to do is to focus rather upon absolute poverty, uh, not so much in terms of like a minimum income, like that $1.25 a day that the World Bank uses, but in terms of the goods that people think you need to have access to to lead a decent life and how much income you need to buy those goods. It's amazing how much consensus there is about that. And if you find there are significant numbers of people in the US who can't afford access to these minimal core goods, then that's a practical policy challenge. And the answer then is to say, well, look, this is a problem, but the way to deal with it is not through these misguided policies that you're advocating. It's through these other policies which will be much more effective. Uh, such as, you know, uh, getting rid of a whole lot of occupational licensing controls and things of that sort, which make it very difficult for people to get jobs. 